1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lamisa Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Susan Hannah Allen and Amy UN about their book, Bargaining in the UN Security Council, Setting the Global Agenda, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Susan and Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks for thanks having us. us. <laughs> So uh, I wonder if you could uh, begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about our, uh, yourself. Susan, let's begin with you.
2: Hi, I'm Susan Allen. Uh, I am an associate professor, although just got the letter that says I'm gonna be a full professor on July 1st uh, at the University of Mississippi. I have wide ranging academic interests, but a lot of them center around uh international coercion or making people do what you want them to do.
3: Um, My name is Amy Ewan, um, and I am a full professor at Middlebury College in Vermont. Um, And I also have lots of different interests um, related to international relations, um, writing about things like third-party intervention, uh, peacekeeping is something that I've been interested in in the past, um, and also some uh, other research methods types of um, articles Um, But right now, it's all about the Security Council.
1: Wonderful. It's great to have you both on the show. Um, So let me ask you about this book, Bargaining, uh, in the U.N. Security Council. How did you come to write it?
2: We didn't mean to. (laughs) (laughs) When we started, we thought we were going to write a book about what the bargaining process looks like to create peacekeeping missions. But we kept running into the fact that we didn't know enough about the broader bargaining process. And we kept looking and we kept looking and we were like, there has to be a book about this somewhere. Somebody's already written this book. But when we realized no one had, it became imperative that we sort of set that groundwork in case we wanted to write the next book or so that somebody else could write that book about peacekeeping bargaining.
3: And in that process, uh, I feel like I learned a lot about how codified the UN is and how codified it isn't, uh, which was fascinating. And that's not something that really comes to the fore, especially in the IR literature, um, when you're looking at um, what institutions do um, and how they decide to do what they do. And I think something else that we ran into was that nobody likes to write on the Security Council. They all write about... Uh, trade institutions, or they write about regional organizations, but there's this this, um, hole around the Security Council and no one really wanted to take that one up.
1: I think that's what makes uh, this book such a fantastic contribution. Um, So before we really dive into your argument um, and your evidence, uh, I wanted to start by asking you to give us some background or some contextual information about the UN Security Council and some of its rules.
2: Sorry, that that was sort of this moment of,
1: oh, who's going to go first?
2: So the UN Security Council is part of the uh, sort of framework of institutions that arises out of the post-World War II peace agreements. Um, It's an effort to try to lock everybody into a cooperative structure in hopes of preventing a repeat of a war on continental Europe since you know we'd done that twice in the first half of the 20th century. Um, in some ways, people like to at this point you know you could probably find a uh, international affairs journal or tweet or some messaging right now that's like oh the UN is dead the Security Council can't do it any do anything. And one of the things that's really interesting for to us is countries still send their top diplomats to the Security Council they keep funding their missions. They pay their dues for the most part. There's a lot of resources invested in making this institution continue to function. And even though it's not necessarily always the most efficient and effective institution, it's what's there and countries of vastly different viewpoints continue to invest in using that institution to air their dirty laundry, to discuss their disagreements, to resolve conflict, to create frameworks for climate accords, lots of different things. And so we were really interested. Why do people keep perpetuating this institution that a lot of pundits want to say is dead?
3: And alongside of that, I think a lot of people have, they feel cynicism about it It, as it, as if it's just a tool of powerful nations, right? That it's not an institution where... Um, If you don't have a nuclear capability, for example, you're just really not going to have any sway. Um, And for us, looking at the structure of the institution um, and recognizing not unlike the way, um, say, legislatures, domestic legislatures work or other um, domestic institutions that make decisions work, there are some surprising power players um, depending on where the rules let you have influence in the institution. So if there's all this investment in the UN – Um, And the Security Council itself, and there's a structure of rules that actually gives more power to to delegations, actually, than we normally think would have that power. There must be some interesting things going on inside of this institution. And so... We looked at the rule structure um, beyond just how many veto players are there. Traditionally, we think about the veto players, the permanent members, the five permanent members, um, and don't pay that much attention to the elected members who don't have veto power. um, But some of the some of the process of producing resolutions um, and all of the discussion turns out to have a real effect on what actually ends up coming out of
1: Security Council. Thank you for that. Um, now, the book advances this sophisticated argument about agenda setting. Um, and obviously a podcast is not the, the best uh, forum to you know describe formal models, but I was wondering if you could uh, summarize your theoretical argument.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So there are um, three... I would say three big points that we we emphasize in the theoretical model. And one is that there is an agenda setting power. So the Security Council is um, is a body that that has a a monthly rotating presidency. And the month that the um, delegation that a delegation that sits on the council is in the presidency, they also set the agenda for that month, which turns out to be rather powerful um, because they decide, you know, aside from the the day-to-day stuff. So there's lots of day-to-day stuff that goes on in the Security Council where they have to deal with missions and they have to receive reports and all of that kind of stuff. But there's also opportunity for delegations to bring particular issues, especially thematic issues, Um, so like um, children in conflict um, scenarios and things like that. Um, to the attention of the council for discussion, debate, and hopefully action. Um, And so that agenda setting power ends up being really important. Um, And um, it can also um, affect how they discuss. So there's the opportunity to talk behind closed doors, which can be very effective at reaching consensus agreements so that they can present a united face, um, or having public meetings, which is part of that process. And in public meetings, you get more strategic behavior on what is the messaging we're giving. So the public privacy, pri- sorry, the public-private um, diplomacy uh, angle here is a second thing that we pull out of this, this this process. Um, and the last one is that oftentimes um, the Security Council is a messaging place. So we see what we call grandstanding behavior. And we look at how the council president affects the ability to grandstand um, inside the council and who gets the opportunity to stand up and point the finger um, to make the case. So it's not always about reaching resolutions. Sometimes it's about messaging and who gets the message out there. And we're actually seeing that a lot right now inside the council.
2: Particularly this month with Russia holding the rotating presidency, they've held meetings on topics that
3: other countries would prefer
2: not to discuss or where there's big disagreement But the opportunity to air some of those issues and get support from domestic constituencies seems to be really important to Russia, and they're using that platform.
1: So in trying to test this argument, uh, your empirics begin with statistical analysis of agenda setting in the Security Council, um, and you use the Security Council agenda item data set. Um, can, Can you describe for us some of your findings there?
2: Well, first, I want to describe the process because this is another thing that we thought ought to exist somewhere, um, but along the way, we found out that the UN is really, really great at creating documents. They're pretty good at storing those documents. They're somewhat lousy at creating consistent formats for that data. So in a lot of ways, the creation of the data set was a heavy lift because it required a lot of effort of, oh wait, the reports look different in this year. And so we couldn't just sort of magically web scrape all the data and have it you know, spit into some beautiful Excel file. A lot of hard hand coding work was done by the two of us and by some students. And so the data are great, I can say, definitely that uh, the data are right because I've spent a lot of time cleaning them. Um, but it was it was really interesting to sort of then take a day by day view of the council and then sort of look at across time when does the council act what are they doing i mean they pass an average of 56 resolutions a year they meet an average of 275 times a year so this is this is a busy organization and keeping track of what gets talked about but also what doesn't get talked about is really important i mean obviously there are issues that don't show up on the council's agenda and so we were curious to see not only what's there, but what's not there. Are they thing- Are there things that are only discussed in private? Are there things that are discussed only in public so that, that people can argue about them? And so we collected this agenda data and then began to look at whether or not there are factors, systematic factors, that help us predict what items are going to get a hearing, what items are going to get... Uh, a public hearing and thus countries are staking reputational costs uh, on those issues. And so we looked at sort of two key aspects of the agenda process. One One of those has to do with the rules and Amy's talked about this a little bit that the rotating presidency makes a difference that elected members get at least one and sometimes two chances during their two years on the council to guide what's going to be discussed. And that has an impact. We see that elected members pick different issues to put on the council. The other thing that we look at is preference variation among the permanent members. So it's not necessarily just what does the United States want to do? You know, we might have this idea that Security Council is just what the most powerful state wants to do all the time. What we were really interested in is how closely clustered preferences among the permanent members are or how spread out there? So is this an issue where China and the U.S. can get on the same page quickly? Or is this an issue where their preferences are so far apart that it's probably not going to result in a resolution and isn't worth discussing? And we found that on issues where there's a tight clustering of preferences, it's much more likely that the council is going to take action.
1: Thank you. <clears throat> so after that, you you also kind of stick with uh, statistical analysis and you look at... Um, the effect of outside options, right? So the possibility that states might uh, act unilaterally outside of the Security Council. Tell us about that.
2: Sure, so this was an interesting opportunity to take someone else's formal model. We didn't make Amy create two formal models and solve them for this book. That that would have been cruel and unusual punishment for her. <laughs> um, but this was an opportunity for us to take an existing formal model written by Eric Vooten, um, who sort of looked at, does the US's threat of unilateral action increase or decrease bargaining space within the council? Does it make it easier for other countries to get on board with multilateral action if the US can credibly say, well, you guys can either join up with us or you can watch from the sidelines? And so we collected data in an attempt to try to test the implications of those models to see whether or not a credible threat by the US or a credible commitment by the US to take some kind of action brought other members of the council to the table. And we found evidence that, yeah, the U.S. can assert some leverage on the bargaining because of its power position in the international system.
1: Now, the book then uh, sort of pivots in terms of methods, right? Uh, And you present a case study of Security Council discussions on North Korea. Um, Can I ask you to summarize those findings?
3: Yeah. So the, the idea behind these case studies was to reflect the fact that Action inside the council is very complicated. Um, And North Korea has been a topic of discussion for at least 25 years. They've been uh, trying to deal with its nuclear program from inception across a bunch of different domestic changes in the permanent members, um, trying to deal with how do we um, how do we prevent nuclear proliferation essentially and where does all that come from Uh, and a lot of that work is they've tried to do inside the council because the council members have actually shared this 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 desire to mitigate um, nuclear proliferation Um, so it was an interesting interesting case in a lot of ways because you have an unusual situation where all five permanent members are kind of going at are swimming in the same direction essentially right and so why is it taking 25 years for them to sort of try and figure out how to deal with it. And it's still ongoing, right? So it hasn't completely resolved one way or another. Um, And for us, it was a good test of um, the public private diplomacy kind of question because there are some difficult points and the focus in that chapter is on essentially what China doing because if we think about North Korea and where it's located um, the United States definitely has strong preferences uh, but there are regional players and China being the biggest one that really sort of calling the shots in that area and so we focused a lot on what China's uh, considerations are for different actions inside and outside of the council um, and what it was that was keeping them from basically going a whole sort of whole hog into sanctioning North Korea to get them to stop their behavior. And what's behind all of this is this concern about collapse of the North Korean regime, right? So the consequences of um, the collapse of North Korea would fall mostly to South Korea and China to deal with the fallout Um, and we had evidence to suggest that they were already planning for this just in case right there's there were reports about like phantom villages they were building to house just in case and all of these telephone poles that were going up and things like that and discussions about how they would handle the nuclear program that existed with um, american officials right before before relations with china really started to sour. but for us we were talking a lot about how China had to play a very careful game of appeasing and and sort of going along with what their their international interest is to prevent nuclear proliferation while trying not to say things that were going to cause domestic political dislocation inside North Korea that would then collapse the regime and create this essentially a refugee crisis um, that they were going to have to deal with. And so it's basically a, a, a history of how the Chinese tried to to push back diplomatically to keep, um, like the American delegation, sort of from 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 sanctioning too hard, essentially, um, and all of the public private diplomacy behind that, in order to keep um, keep the regime stable, but also look like they were doing something to mitigate um, to mitigate uh, uh, nuclear proliferation.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: You also consider case studies of how the Security Council handled Kosovo in the late 1990s, um, and also uh, uh, Canada's involvement in uh, advancing the notion of the responsibility to protect. Uh, what do you find there? All right, so the um,
3: the Responsibility to Protect case study is all about agenda setting. Um, and we wanted to show, we we started this book saying, can anybody else affect the Security Council beyond the permanent members? And the answer is unequivocally yes. Um, and one thing that we found was the agenda setting power. And so the case study on the responsibility to protect is a great example of this because the permanent members kind of didn't really care. They were sort of saying, you know, responsibility to protect, you know, is a document, it's a thing, it's a policy recommendation, but we're not going to push this issue. Um, and Canada had a really big role in this because they originally have had a lot of peacekeeping soldiers and they were looking at, Um, The responsibility of other nations to make sure that populations were protected. Um, And they essentially took on um, coalition building project where they were they were pulling other nations in who were going to sit on the council as elected members to keep the ball rolling inside the council. On this issue, that the permanent members just weren't that interested in. Um, they funded a bunch of things outside to try and build consensus around what is this document, what is this resolution that's going to codify RTP look like, giving a lot of ground to China and Russia, who were very skeptical of this. Um, And essentially having the effect of making the Security Council the forum where these kinds of things get decided, which is good for Russia and China because they have a veto power. So they essentially went in and figured out how to build the coalition that they needed in order to get their resolution passed. And they did in 2005. So R2P is now codified part of the Security Council, which no one would have predicted in in the 1990s, right? Um, And so that was a great example of the agenda setting. The Kosovo case is one where we see um, also some of the public-private diplomacy dynamic that we argue in the book is so important. We found evidence in memoirs that um, the Russian delegation basically knew that um, so the issue with um, how to deal with Kosovo and Serbia um, was that they were going to have to to use force Um, and. The Security Council was never going to publicly agree to that, Um, so there were behind the scenes um, negotiations that we found to suggest that the Russians were basically like, "Yeah, you're going to have to bomb him, and we're going to just, you know, on the side say that's okay," but inside the council, they use the platform. to grandstand, um, to come in to say, you know, this is where NATO is going on outside. Nobody's agreed to this inside the council. And this is why the council needs to be the primary decision-making body. Um, so there were great cases to illustrate the different arguments that we had, that allowed us to sort of unpack the real negotiations and the real history that were going on in these in these deliberations.
1: And it really sort of dovetails with the with the larger claim in the book that. Um... That, you know that, that there are a lot of studies that focus specifically on votes um, and on uh, missions right that are authorized but that there's there's not as much looking at the the bargaining processes that precede these and that's really where the book comes in um, so we've done sort of an, an overview of the of the theoretical argument and the empirical evidence in the book uh, so I wanted to ask you what would you say are the implications of this study
2: I think one of the biggest things we came away with was a recognition of something that every PhD student in an international organization's class is told, which is that rules matter. We learned that there's a lot more nuance about rules in terms of what are the strict procedures of the council say, what are the informal rules of the council say, what gets said when the mics are on and the lights are on and what gets said behind closed doors, but we really found that institutions aren't just this amalgamation of powerful states, it's not just a megaphone that's blasting out what the powerful states want, it's an instrument where states have to work within the rules and where we particularly see elected members or potentially less powerful members making use of the rules in order to advance ideas that aren't always the most popular with the most powerful states.
3: I would say also, I would add to that, um, that we've also learned that they know the rules um, and that they've learned to use them strategically. So they are actors looking at how can I get what I want, but also get it passed, it functions very similar to how legislators work when they're trying to make deals on the floor of any governing body. And so in some ways, the international and the domestic politics divide is artificial, right? A lot of how the rule systems work are gonna generate the same kind of dynamics. And that's what we found inside the council as well. And one of the last things that I think we were really surprised about in just doing this research um, was learning about... um, capacity, right? So if you have, if you, if your delegation has the capacity to know the rules, and have long institutional memory like the permanent members have, they're very good at using the rules to their advantage. Um, The less experience you have inside the council, the harder it's going to be. That learning curve is much harder. And so the less time you've spent on the council, the less likely you are to be able to, to know the rules and how to manipulate those rules, which is what's sort of launching us into the next kinds of projects that we're interested in pursuing on the council.
1: That's fascinating. So uh, one of the last things you do in the book is uh, you have a brief commentary on various proposals for reform of the UN Security Council. Uh, I wondered if you could maybe get into that a little bit.
3: Oh gosh, Um, so (laughs) there is, there are tons of proposals right it's policymakers making these proposals it's actual members who are in the council making these proposals it's delegations outside who've never sat on the council who are looking inside and saying what are these problems um but changing the rules of the council is really hard um because of the that way changed
2: the rules since 1986 and that was just to add arabic as an official language that was the last right. rule change for the council
3: I mean, when we're talking about a lot of these proposals want to change the number of veto powers or they want to change the voting rules or they want to change whether there's a veto at all. Um, Those kinds of changes are charter level um, and they're really, really, really difficult. I I would I would I'm going to go on record and say, I doubt we're going to see it just because of the kind of consensus uh, and, and passage, the way the rules are written now the permanent members have no incentive to change that. Um and there's actually been a lot of research done talking about so they have actually um they have changed the number of elected members on the council and the voting rule that for when um resolutions pass since the inception of the um the security council. Uh, but the veto players have always been the same. That was and before we were born, Amy. <laughs> a it long, was, long time ago. it was it was a long time ago. Um but they um Uh, But the research has suggested that if you were to increase the number of veto players, you just increase the likelihood of deadlock, which is then going to make the institution less effective, which actually hurts the UN. Um, And so there are all kinds of follow on consequences that some of these proposals haven't really thought through that a lot of other academics, not me um, necessarily, but other um, other smart people have thought about and said, you know, what would the consequence be if we did this rule change? And what they found is it actually, it hurts the effectiveness of the institution potentially.
2: And I think that's a really important tension for the UN and the Security Council in particular, the proposals that suggest larger numbers of elected members or increasing the number of veto players are looking at enhancing legitimacy. The idea is the institution is getting bigger and bigger. There are more and more members of the UN, but the council is staying the same and it's frozen in a place that looks like 1948, not 2023. But expanding the council might bring enhanced legitimacy at the cost of effectiveness and i think that that's something that often doesn't come up or those knock-on effects as amy was saying are often thought through maybe you're more legitimate but you're just sitting around twiddling your thumbs because you cannot agree on anything is that really a gain for the institution
1: great so at the at the the top uh, of this conversation, uh, you mentioned sort of the relevance of this book to current events. We're recording this podcast at the beginning of April 2023. And right now, Russia uh, holds the presidency of the UN Security Council. So um, I wondered, uh, you know, in in what ways your book can help us understand uh, Russia's behavior uh, in the context, of course, uh, of the war in Ukraine.
2: I think the first thing that we would have to say is that the proposals that, oh, Russia doesn't have a legitimate seat on the Security Council because that seat was gifted to the Soviet Union, is a proposal that's a non-starter. I I know it feels good to say let's kick Russia off the Security Council, but that wouldn't, again, advance the Council's effectiveness to act. It would merely hasten the demise of the institution. So I think the one thing in our understanding and recognition that rules matter breaking the rules can lead to breaking the institution pretty quickly.
3: I agree and I think that um I think that as much as we are frustrated oftentimes not just in this instance but it's it's sort of heightened in this instance because the Western press is really sort of looking at this and 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 you know uh they're they're looking at what feels like really bad behavior by the Russian delegation um is something we have to tolerate if we want our our institutions to be stable, and if we want them to be effective, right? Is that sometimes they're just not going to do what we want them to do because they have to reach agreement. Um, I think part of also what we might take away is that Russia is using the council exactly as we would expect them to, right? They're standing up there making their case publicly. They're, uh, it's not clear that that case is really hitting home for a Western audience, but it's not clear that the Western audience is the one that they care about right now either. So we can't forget that domestic audiences are also watching what is happening in the Security Council, and they may be reacting very differently um, to what they're seeing there to, say, a domestic audience in the United States.
2: And some of the issues that Russia is bringing to the Council during its presidency are probably not geared towards discussion with a Western audience, but might resonate with the public in India or with the leadership of India or with the leadership of China, countries that are more on the fence about the legitimacy of Russian action in on Ukrainian territory. And so this is Russia recognizing, I've got a really big microphone and a really big platform for this month. How do I make my case in a way that can compete with everything that's coming out in the Western media, and so they're saying, "Yeah, agenda setting's real, and we're going to try to take advantage."
1: It's very helpful. Now, obviously, we've only skimmed the surface of you know all of the content uh, that's in this book, and it really the book really packs a punch. Um, is there anything we haven't covered that you think is important for our listeners to know?
3: I would say I would start out by saying um, that the Security Council matters. We are um, often Looking at the UN and wondering its relevance um, in 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 this century, Um, I think that it's because we don't see it day to day coming up in the media. And when we do, it's it's a lot of criticism about what doesn't pass or what the like what the dynamics are like right now. We get cynical about it. Um, But this council, these it's active, and most of the time they're actually putting things through. It just doesn't get the kind of attention. Like the it's the 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 successes don't get the attention um that the failures get. Um and so this institution is alive and kicking um for now. Um and my fear is that you know the the way that we see this institution crumble is violent. And so we don't want um, that to be um the road that we're headed on, essentially.
2: I think to sort of dovetail to dovetail with that point that Amy just made, one thing that we learned is that the Security Council plays a really big role for other countries in their foreign policies in ways that we don't think about as Americans. You know, the French president and the British prime minister talk about the Security Council when giving major foreign policy speeches. China obviously thinks that leverage in the council is important and has ramped up voluntary contributions to peacekeeping, has increased its number of peacekeeping troops, Other countries are watching the council and thinking about ways that they can make use of this as a tool of diplomacy. And if we as Americans turn our backs, then we're going to be missing a big opportunity. And so I think seeing the way that the rest of the world sees the council has been a really important part of our learning experience on writing this book.
1: Thank you so much for that um so susan and amy we've taken up a lot of your time uh so i just want to ask you one final question which is you know this book is now done right (laughs) it's out in the world um what is it that you're working on now
2: so we want to know more about the elected members there's this argument out there in the political science literature that elected members to the security council get better get a better deal from the imf or they get more foreign aid as though that's the rationale for running for an elected seat on the council. No one that we met, no one that we've talked to, none of the speeches, none of the countries that have campaigned spending millions of dollars to try to get a seat on the Security Council ever mentioned that. And so we're really interested in trying to dig into what countries think that they get out of being on the council. Why does Canada work so hard after it gets the ball rolling in RTP in 1999 to get back on the council to push that across the line? How do countries work in sequence, what they call passing the baton to keep issues alive? Why do elected countries, why do elected members want these seats? Because obviously they do. And we as Americans are like, oh, well, you don't have any power. So why, why, why would you want that? We we, we wanna know why. And we've, we've been working on a strategy for a deep dive into that. Um, and how states ramp up their capacity to be on the council, what they try to do, what they, I could talk forever about this, I'll stop. I,
3: I would also add, um, um, in in the, the research process for this book and some of the talks we've given afterwards, we've learned a lot about how they think of themselves and where they think their effectiveness shows. So it may not be in the number of resolutions the way we count, right? It may not be that they're heading up and writing, you know, like they're serving as pen and, you know, that's sort of where they're having their perfect sort of effects. They see lots of other types of actions or language or influence or coalition building as elements of success. And we don't have any Measures of that. We don't have any data on that. We don't have any theory on that because we're missing that whole idea about where it is that elected members really feel like they influence the institution. We've we've looked very closely at the big, obvious things, uh, but there's so much more that goes on behind the scenes in these negotiations that we want to look closer to see where the elected members are having influences that we normally wouldn't think about.
1: That sounds like a really great project and I hope you'll come back to the podcast and tell our listeners about that book uh, when it's completed. Um, So thank you both for being on the show today. Thank you. you. The book is Susan Hannah Allen and Amy U.N.'s Bargaining in the U.N. Security Council, Setting the Global Agenda, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Thank you for listening.